I'm Daniel, and I'm going to talk to you and with you a little bit about podcasting today. Um, usually, I go in the other direction. I've been talking to a lot of podcasters about what broadcasters can bring, in particular editing, and it, it's kind of cool to be working uh, in this direction instead. Before this, I spent a lot of time talking to authors and engineers about blogging, and in a way that the issues are the same. So, um, last year at Third Coast, I learned a lot. I was sort of my return back to audio. And the things I learned were pretty fundamental, and the things that you guys know, that if you listen around to podcasting, some podcasts do and some podcasts don't. So it's the special skills that you guys bring. And in particular, what we learned was good audio, there were just basically three things, and this came up over and over again. And so people would stand up and say, well, I do the local for my local NPR, and I just got these 90-second stories that are just horrible, and it's the same story every day. And over and over, you'd, you'd hear the same thing. Find the story, find the characters, and you know, think about your role as, as a storyteller. So those are the skills you have that so many people don't have. And so a lot of uh, today is, is just about you. So I got this this morning. Someone sent me this unbelievable math problem. And it's one of these take you through these steps and you basically end up with the number you've input. And I get these a lot because... I'm a recovering mathematician. And I mention this because to the person that sent me this, her daughter had sent it to her, she thought it was just stunning magic that you could put in these numbers and end up with your phone number. The fact that you've entered your phone number in two pieces should have given it away. And so the message here is pretty much the same is true about you. What you do to some people is just magic. And they don't know how you listen to the same audio piece and you cut it down to something that's compelling and they don't. So it's up to you whether you give away the, the, the magic or not. So where we start with authors is, is really simple. Someone wants to write a book and the first thing you ask them is, what do you like to read? And so let's start there for podcasters and, and ask you, what do you listen to? And then because you're going to want to not just do this for fun, but you're going to want to do it for profit, it's useful to know what, what others listen to. So if you look at iTunes and look at the top podcasts for today, it's actually kind of interesting. If you look at the first 15, it's a lot of radio. If you look down deeper, you'll find some more, as long as I don't insult the people who are doing this radio who are probably in this room, more interesting, more diverse, more different sort of thing. So as a first exercise, uh, turn to someone near you and chat about uh, podcasts that you subscribe to and, and why. So let's just take a minute to do that. So cool. Did you find some stuff that you didn't know about? So the, the super secret reason for doing that exercise is it gave some people a chance to sneak out. Who's, oh, I didn't want to be in this session. But the other reason is so you can exchange ideas. And we're going to do that from time to time during the session. So if you didn't like your neighbor, it's going to be a long morning. So can't anybody podcast? Anybody get a mic and something to record on? Can they podcast? The answer is yes, but if you listen to people like Barry Diller, you ever heard Barry Diller talk about user-contributed con content? On the one hand... His sites are all built on it. So he does um, matchmaker.com. Without user content, he wouldn't have a site because he's not going to write all that stuff. But he's not too worried about people competing with his network. So here's what he says. The talent pool is finite. There are only, only so many people of, of the kind of talent that is going to resonate really widely. Right. Now, there's going to be, obviously, 
there are people who are, I mean, anybody is capable of making up something that four people are going to like, or 44, or people who are in their family, or other things like that. And every once in a while, something is going to come along that, whether it's the dancing person in the bathtub or whatever it's going to be, that, that, that's going to be a flash and people, but that's not what I'm talking about in terms of talent. What I'm saying is, is there are only, only a group of people in the whatever amount you would like to call them. It's not in the hundreds of thousands, I promise you. And those talent outs, and that is the pool that is, we're going to depend upon, as we always have, for things that are going to generate to wide audiences. So the warning here is that it's really easy for you to listen to stuff and say, oh, that's garbage, and I know how to do this, and to become the podcasting police and say, that's not a podcast. And what you've got to realize is there's people on the other side of it who listen to the thing that, that are done by very professionally sounding people and saying, that's not a podcast. And so um, the question about can't anybody podcast, uh, were people listening to the entries for the, the talent quest when that was up? The conversations there were pretty similar. There were a lot of people who it was clearly one of their first pieces they ever did, and they were very proud of it, and they were very nurturing of other people like it, and they kind of felt cheated that they were in the same pool as, as people who'd done it for a long time. And then there were people who were in that very um, experienced pool who were dismissive of the people at the other end. You're going to find that same thing in podcasting. And so the Can't Anybody podcast is going to hit you when you go out to do this as a business because some people think of podcasting as the very amateurish two guys with a microphone just chatting about you know, what they did that day in the same way that we saw this with blogs. And so they're very professional blogs. They're blogs that really break interesting stories. And then there's a blog about I got up and I brushed my teeth and I do what I do. So what do you bring to all this? What you bring is your ra radio skills, but that's not enough. What these other people bring who don't have the radio skills is a lot of them are very interesting. And so one thing I'd like to, to challenge you on for a little bit is to think about this Google 20%. So, you know, Google's really well known for saying 20% of an engineer's time is spent just thinking and reinvesting in themselves. And so I know it's really hard when you're doing a lot of pieces to stop and think of something interesting that you should be learning, but that's where you're going to find your business podcasting in those communities. And so as your second exercise and your second opportunity to leave if you need to, if you had the means, what would you do with your 20%? Let's take a minute and think about what are the things that you've always wanted to, to learn a bit more about, whether it be writing, whether it be a specific programming language, whether it be what? And how might you podcast in that field? So have you ever hung with photographers and people always come up to them and they see these beautiful pictures they've taken and they look at the whole exhibit and they ask them, what camera do you use? And what were the settings, as if that were the point? And the point is, it's not the camera. And this came at a, at a concert I was at. I, I was watching Wynton Marsalis, and someone shouted up on stage at him and said, nice shoes. And he said without missing a beat, yeah, but the shoes can't play the horn. And so, of course, people want to know what kind of horn he uses. And so what I'm not going to talk about today are the tools for podcasting. I'm not going to talk about the microphones we use and whether you use you know, a Marantz recorder or whatever you use. I'm not going to talk about, if, if you're on the air list, the, the famous 
pro tools versus other tools arguments. So, you know, those can wait another day and they really don't have anything to do with what we're doing. So for me, podcasting is more about questions and answers, finding what, what you're interested in and who would be willing to pay you to do such a thing or just to do it for fun. So it's more questions than answers. And, and to me, it's all about you. And here's where the starting point was for me. Did anybody read the Dilbert blog? Scott Adams writes a really interesting blog. And some of it he's pulled down recently because he found he could make money putting it into a book and selling it. But he offered this career advice. He said, if you want to be really successful, there are basically two ways to do it. Way one is become the best at one specific thing. So for example, in the NBA, there are 12 players a team, 20-some teams. There aren't many people that are making a good living playing basketball. But these people become the best at one specific thing. His second advice was become very good at two or more things. And so for him, his example was there's lots of people that draw better than him. But he draws better than about 75% of the world. And there's lots of people that tell jokes better than him. But again, he's in the top 25% of joke tellers. But combining those two, he's got a pretty effective career uh, drawing comics. And so that's why I challenge you to think about the, the Google 20%, what you would invest in, what your other skills are, because the things that you already do cover that first group. And then the things that you could talk about is the second. So his recommendation was that one of the skills should involve communication. You're there. Now, what are the things that you're passionate about? And you could go ahead and find something else, a third thing that you'd like to learn more about and start combining these things. So as a dad with an 11-year-old daughter, I mean, this is great advice. He also talks about hypnotism, but that's another day. So that to me is where, where good podcasts come from. Passion, some interest in something, connection to the community, knowledge of what's out there already, you're filling a gap, you're taking the, the, the user on a, on, a, on a trip. And so not now, but now that you've got your Google 20%, you're thinking about it. Think about three skills at which you're in the top 25%. Oh, go ahead, do it now. Take a minute, think about three things at least that you're in the top 25% of. Those of you that aren't talking to your neighbors yet, I've noticed. There's a lot of cool things coming out of here. So items on your list might include telling a story. You probably read out loud better than most people. I'm guessing your voice tends to be better than most people. A good ear is an amazing thing. You'd be shocked at how many people don't have a good ear. And good editing and production skills. And so this is what makes you halfway there. Most of the way there, your broadcasting skills we could classify this as. But it doesn't tell you what you can tell a story about. These are the things that help you tell a story and tell a good story and tell it well. But it doesn't give you the content. And so, you know, that's, that's where management schools popped up. We can teach you how to be a manager. Manager of what? Doesn't matter. Well, I don't believe that in broadcasting you have to have the other skills. You have to have the interest. So why you? Why should you be a podcaster? Because you've got those skills. Because it's a new opportunity for you. Because you've been sending it the same places. Why you? is, is it's, it's about time that you podcast. It's 
so easy. You just should. Okay, now what? You know what you want a podcast about? You're confident in your abilities. You've got your equipment together. You hit the streets. You get your story together. And you pitch the usual suspects. And you get the usual answers. <laughs> and so you ask yourself, what else is there? Well, one way to go is to say there's other shows in the world. I don't have to keep pitching the same shows. And one example of that is, of course... Here is Carl Castle on an actual answering machine message playing right now somewhere in America. Hello, this is Carl Castle of National Public Radio. You have reached the home of Leslie Bayer. Leslie regrets that she's unable to take her call right now, but she'll get back to you as soon as she can. But in the meantime, sit back, relax, and listen to these profound words. I'm your boogeyman. That's what I am. I'm here to do whatever I can. Get early morning, late afternoon, or midnight. It's never too soon. I'm your boogeyman. 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 So I played that one partly because it's Carl Castle and partly because that's pretty risky for a guy that does what he does. And you're going to face some of the same risks in podcasting because... Unlike writing, where you can write under another name and people don't know it's you, they know your voice. You hear these voices that you've heard forever on public radio, and you know their voice even in a different context. You've watched a TV commercial and said, oh, I know who that is. That's the guy who played Herman Munster. Or, you know, so you know these people out of context. context. The other thing is, is you can pitch other shows. You can pitch other outlets. The world has changed, and, and radio isn't the only outlet anymore. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Bob Edwards Show for Tuesday, October 30th. The state of health care insurance in the United States is so bad that even the presidential candidates are talking about it. Today I'll discuss the issue with Dr. Henry Simmons, president of the National Coalition on Health Care, which describes itself as the nation's largest and most broadly representative alliance working to improve America's health care system. And then we'll hear from singer-songwriter Dan Wilson, formerly with the band Semisonic, and winner of a Grammy for a song he wrote for the Dixie Chicks. Now at the ripe old age of 46, he finally has his first solo album, a real gem titled Free Life. So I woke up to that voice for years on NPR, and now he's on XM Radio. So finding different outlets, could be other shows, could be other networks, could be other venues, and it, it could be podcasting. The final example was one that, that are there air members here? So this pops up on the air list every once in a while and, and shocks me because I never think of him. So B.J. Lederman posts every once in a while on the air list to make sure people are still thinking of him when they're looking for someone to compose their theme song. You know, here's someone who you hear his music on tons of shows. He's top of mind and yet you think that he's unaffordable. And some of you fall in that same category. People hear you on the air and they think, I could never hire them to do a podcast for me. So some of it is you just have to do outreach and remind people that, yes, you're affordable, or no, you're not, but you really could use the work. So you gotta think of where you fit into all this. So you've got your abilities, you've got your interests. Take a moment just to provide the context for the rest of this, this uh, hour and think about, what podcast would you like to produce? What subject would you like to talk about? 
Who would you like to do it for? How might you reach them? So what's something you just like? So my daughter's really into um, Disney pins right now. I'm sure she'd love to do a podcast about Disney pins. You can reach a little bit higher. So for those of you on the air list, when you produce some of these podcasts I'm listening to you describe, make sure you post the URL so we can find them. So why? Why are you the right person to podcast this? Why do you want to podcast this? Why do you want to do this program? Okay? Could be something as simple as, as ego. This is Maggie. I was driving Maggie home from school one day. And she said she had to interview an author. I said, well, you know, I've written 12 books. <laughs> said, yeah, but you're not J.K. Rowling. So <laughs> some of it's ego that we want to be thought about when we do these shows and when we walk around our community. Uh, there were guys in, in my community when I grew up who would go down to the basketball courts and set up a microphone and, and a speaker, and they'd call the games just for the people around them. So... You know, when you ask yourself why really, there are lots of reasons to um, do a podcast. You might just want to do one for fun. Hold on to that. Fun is a huge reason. One is there's a story that needs to be told, and you pitch it to more and more outlets, and no one wants to run it. And this story just needs to be told. There's stories like that. To make money, that's um, not a bad reason. You want to experiment. I've had a ball this year because I've been able to experiment with different styles. And so I did a podcast for one company where I said, you know, I'd really like to experiment with a Robert Krolwich style. And I did one for another company where I wanted to experiment with, what if you interviewed people and then you edited yourself out of it? Could you tell the story that way? So experimentation is, is just a wonderful reason. You want to help someone out, someone's trying to publicize something, or you want to generate uh, interest and you know, attract the network to what you're doing. So a huge reason is for regular practice. If you wait for work, you're not doing enough work sometimes. And so having a podcast gives you a reason to get up and do this story X amount of times a month. And regular practice is a wonderful thing. It's like writing practice. There's a lot of parallels between writing and podcasting. Of course, there's a warning, and the warning is there can be problems. Your voice is recognizable. Podcasting can help your career, but it can also impede it. And so make sure that you do sanity checks with some of your friends and, and not friends who think everything you do is wonderful. So let's get back to this fun thing. Henry cries, but is interrupted. Brother, you're not going to believe who's here. It's the man from Central, and the blood rushes out of Ed's face at the very sight of him. This is my friend Chris. Chris and I have edited websites together for um, O'Reilly and for others, and he's just a fan of Full Metal Alchemist. And he produces this podcast based on their episodes. And he doesn't do it like an amateur. He has a full script, which if you go to the lyrics of his uh, podcast, you can see it's a very traditional um, script. You can see that he was trained at Headline News. He does it for fun. He does it in his house. His wife has to understand when he disappears for four hours to produce his show. He takes clips from the show. He's waiting for them to shut him down. I have permission to use his clips. Um, 
but you should think about what he's doing just for the love of it, and that doesn't imply that it's low quality. So you can do something for fun and do something that's pretty high quality. You can experiment and grow by trying different things. His, his podcast has evolved over time, and he's built quite a following. You can also get a sponsor. When you get a sponsor, when you take money, life changes. And not always, you know, you, you get your bandwidth paid for, you get your time paid for, but sponsors do change things. So the things that are in parentheses, I'm not saying out loud because this will be podcast and, and just to let you know. So this is a, is a, this is a podcast that I recorded and, and we sold. Uh, we recorded it for these people. <laughs> and we sold it to these people um, for $50,000. I made two phone calls and raised $50,000 for the podcast. And it was a wonderful thing. So there is money in this. That's a lot of money. But if you look at the product, the product was a good product, a lot of good talks. And so we sold it as sort of like the TED Talks, only affordable. So that's unusual, but you can think in terms of what you're doing and you can think of clients. And so when you produce something, when you produce a website, you always think in a website, what am I linking out to? The other thing you should always think about is what do I want to link into me? Think that with podcasts too. Think of your potential clients. So I want you to reconsider the amateur. Do you know who Paul Graham is? Paul Graham wrote Hackers and Poets. Um, I'm sorry, Hackers and Painters. And Paul Graham spoke at um, OSCON, and, and I had it in a podcast I used to produce called Distributing the Future. And here's his talking about channels and blogs and amateurs. And it's, it's a long piece, but it's, it's well worth listening to. This, to me, is the key of what the opportunities are in podcasting. He's talking about blogging, but it's the same. Like open source, blogging is something people do themselves for free because they enjoy it. Like open source hackers, bloggers compete with people working for money and often win. I think the most important of the new principles business has to learn from the world of open source is that people work a lot harder on things they like. I think, I think we were designed to work just as we were designed to eat a certain amount of fiber and we feel bad if we don't. Well, there's a name for people who work for the love of it, amateurs. That word now has such bad connotations that we forget its etymology, though it's staring us in the face. Amateur was originally rather a complimentary word, but the thing to be in the 20th century was professional, which amateurs, by definition, are not. That's why the business world was surprised by another lesson from open source, that people working for love often surpass those working for money. Most users who switch from Explorer to Firefox don't do it because they want to hack the source. They switch because it's a better browser. Well, it's not like Microsoft isn't trying. They know that controlling the browser is one of the keys to retaining their monopoly. I suspect professionalism was always overrated, not just in the literal sense of working for money, but also connotations like formality and detachment. Um, Inconceivable, as it would have seemed in, say, 1970, I think professionalism was partly just a fashion driven by conditions that happened to prevail in the 20th century. One of the most powerful of these was the existence of channels, 
Revealingly, the same word was used for both products and information. There were distribution channels and TV and radio channels. And it was these channels that made professionals seem so superior to amateurs. There were only a few jobs as professional journalists, for example. And so that competition meant the average journalist was pretty good, whereas anyone can express his opinions about current events in a bar. And so the average person expressing his opinions in a bar sounds like an idiot compared to a professional journalist writing about the topic. On the web, the barrier for publishing your ideas is even lower. You don't have to buy a drink, and they let kids in. <laughs> Millions of amateurs are now publishing online, and the level of what they're writing, as you might expect, is not very good. This has led a few in the print media to conclude that blogs don't present much of a threat, that blogs are just a fad. Actually, the fad is the word blog, at least the way the print media now use it. If you pay attention, the way they use the word blogger, they mean anybody who publishes online, not just someone who publishes in a weblog format. That's going to become a problem as the web becomes the default medium for publication. Um, I don't like to coin phrases, but I think now is the time to do it. I'd like su to suggest an alternative word for someone who publishes online. How about writer? <laughs> Those in the print media who dismiss the writing online because of its low average quality are missing an important point. No one reads the average blog. In the old world of channels, it meant something to talk about average quality because that's what everyone was getting, whether they liked it or not. But now, now you can read any writer you want. So the average quality of writing online isn't what the print media are competing against. They're competing against the best writing online, and like Microsoft, they're losing. Aggregators show how much better you can do than the channel. The, t the Times front page is a list of articles written by people who work for the New York Times. Delicious is a list of articles that are interesting. And it's only now that you can see the two side by side that you can see how little overlap there is. <laughs> a child gets abducted. There's a tornado. A ferry sinks. Someone gets bitten by a shark. A small plane crashes. And what do you learn about the world from these stories? Absolutely nothing. They're outlying data points. What makes them gripping also makes them irrelevant. As in software, when professionals produce such crap, it's not surprising if amateurs can do better. Live by the channel, die by the channel. If you depend on an oligopoly, you sink into bad habits that are hard to overcome when you suddenly get competition. I think that's huge. And I think that's the opportunity for us as podcasters. The fact that the channels are now something that we can challenge. Granted, we have to be an aggregator, so we have to make it into the iTunes Music Store list. But that's easy enough to do. We just post a link to our podcast and away we go. There's a lot of noise, but we can rise above it by managing that. So channels is something that we don't have to compete with. And podcast becomes a dirty word, the same way blogger is. So the same way a blogger is a writer, a podcaster is someone who produces audio, compelling audio. So podcast describes a distribution method. There are really bad podcasts that doesn't taint what you do. 
video and audio, it's not clear because we use the same term for both. Uh, we thought that that would diverge, and Leo Laporte's been pushing people not to use the word podcast, and I think it's too late. A lot of people sit and listen to these things and say, that's not a podcast, that's not a podcast. But remember, we're not the podcast police, and we saw this before. We saw this with blogs. We saw this with TV, radio. We see this with books. There are books that you are proud to tell someone who's interviewing you for a job, yeah, I read that book. And then there's books that you read for fun and don't tell anyone about. There are good blogs or bad blogs. Um, you know, you've got shows on TV that couldn't sit next to each other. You've got Brian Lamb on C-SPAN, and you've got Laverne and Shirley reruns. So, like blogging and podcasting, they're the same thing. They're that elephant where, depending on how you come at it, it's what you think it is. And so what I'm telling you is, is you can come at it with your public radio hat on and, and do wonderful and, and fun things. So some of the key things, I think, coming out of Paul Graham's is that no one listens to the average podcast. Few people do. It's not what you're worried about. Do you all know what the long tail is? No? Okay. So the theory of the long tail is that if you run a store like a Borders, it's hard to stock every single book. If you run a video store like Blockbuster, it's hard to stock every single video. But if you're Amazon or you're Netflix, it's very easy because you can stock just a few of these titles and people will find you. You can make a lot of money off this long tail, this, this tale of things that not many people are interested in any individual title, but in aggregate they are. So you can think about long tail and granted, or chances are if, if you've got a topic that you think, well, me and six friends would be interested in, it's probably more popular than that. I know you can prove me wrong, but don't. So narrowcasting and broadcasting are possible as podcasting. So what podcasting is, and this was interesting this morning because you said you didn't think what you did was, was podcasting. And we had that same issue at um, Apple. I did a series of podcasts. Um, they had people come in from Macworld. And we interviewed a bunch of them. And we posted the audio and Apple labeled them podcasts and got a lot of feedback because they didn't have an RSS stream. They didn't have some way of people to subscribe to them. There were only nine, and then that was the end of them. So there are people that will say, you know, for, for a podcast, it's not just audio. It also has to have the corresponding feed and, and all the right fields filled in. It's hard to figure out what podcasting isn't, except for this group. Podcasting is not radio. So that's a hard habit to get out of. You know when you go into a break and you say, we're talking to, and you come back from the break and say, we're talking to? People don't listen to podcasts that way. People don't come in in the middle of a podcast, and that's where they pick it up. In radio, you always got to be worried about the person that's walking into the room. And so there are sportscasters who have egg timers, and every time the egg timer runs out, they give the score again just so that someone's joining in that minute and a half. They know what's going on. So things that differ in radio, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip past this one. <clears throat> Is it, excuse me, traditional metrics don't apply. So those of you that worked in radio, I, I don't know, not just public radio, but um, I, I began working in, in what was called urban contemporary and progressive and, and things like that. And we worried about things like average quarter hours and, and cumes, how many people tuned in and how much time they spent listening. And so you got these nutty things like this. Anybody seen a programming wheel where you, you, you play the hits here and you, you push your news out so that you're back to music before your competitor is? And 
we, we I worked for a station that first played three songs in a row, then five songs in a row, then eight in a row, and then we played twelve in a row, played eight minutes of commercials, played one song, played eight minutes of commercials, and then another twelve in a row. So it, it leads to nutty behavior. You don't have to do any of that when you're podcasting, because that's not how people learn. I'm sorry, that's not how people listen to you. So your design constraints are different. First of all, how often you push an episode. All sorts of people will give you advice. What you'll usually hear is that if you push an episode less than once a week, that it's infrequent, people won't get in the habit of listening to you. But people aren't tuning in to you. It's not like TV. It's not like radio where they have to remember, oh my gosh, this show's on at 7 o'clock on Saturday night. i got to listen. They just subscribe, and it appears magically in their, in their aggregator, and they've got it. So frequency of episodes, sure, once a week or, or more frequently is nice, but it doesn't have the same meaning anymore because they don't have to remember to go get you. You show up automatically. How long an episode is, this is what's really nice. You ever have to stretch 15 seconds, 20 seconds, find that piece that fits right here? You don't have to do that in a podcast. If that's all the stuff you got to say this week, go home. Length of an episode does not have to be uniform. So um, length of an episode, depending on what you're doing, there's a sweet spot often of 20 minutes. That's a nice length to listen to something. There are some shows that can go longer. Some shows go an hour. Um, Leo's, did anybody listen to Twit? Twit often goes an hour, 10 minutes, an hour, 20 minutes. I listen about seven minutes. Oops, that got recorded. <laughs> Sorry, Leo. The structure of an episode, I'm actually a fan of, of putting some structure in your episode. Not that you need regular breaks, but if you think of a show as a show, so I produce a show for Sun. Uh, it's their Java mobile and embedded podcast. Doesn't have my voice on it, but we gave it a basic structure where they do their intros, they do the news of the week, they talk about something that, that interests them, they do their feature, they come back and they do their likes and dislikes, they say goodbye. And just that structure has helped them through it and it helps their listeners through it. So structuring an episode, not required because you don't have to hit breaks at certain times during the hour but it still does help your listeners. And so you should think in terms of giving your listeners something comfortable. Something else that's nice that you can do in podcasts that people don't often take advantage of is you can chapter them. And so you ever listen to a show and there's a really slow story, but you really like the show, you just want to flip past this story? Chaptering allows you to do that. Chaptering says, okay, this story ends now, and now we're back to something that might be interesting to me. The other thing that you can do in chaptering is indicate what it is that the story's about. So you can take a quick look and say, okay, here's what I want to listen to. I can fast forward. You can have um, links to URLs so that people can see the pictures of the people talking or the products they're talking about and then click and, and go there. Uh, that helps uh, sell sponsors because you can include sponsors with links there too. Show notes. You saw how elaborate Chris's show notes are. Uh, Chris and, and I tend to put scripts in our show notes because we think that helps people, um, particularly people who have, have hearing issues can now read through the show and see what it is, so that's kind of nice. Although podcasting is wide open, I think you'll find it easier to work within constraints. 
And so if you decide what your show should feel like and decide some of these things ahead of time, uh, I think it's helpful. I also think you're all allowed to grow a show. And so it's better initially to have a 10-minute weekly show than a 20-minute show once a month. You know, do what you can, start small and grow your show, but keep the frequency up because that's how you build listeners. The other nice thing about a podcast is past episodes, depending on how you set it up, past episodes stay on your site. And so people can catch up from the beginning. So if you make a backwards reference, uh, it makes sense to them. So here's something people in, in this room are really good at. Great photographers are really good at. Great writers are really good at. The average podcaster is not. The average podcaster doesn't throw anything away. If they said it, it's going in the show. So something that we can do to distinguish it is we edit, we do an interview, and something was wrong with it, just the audio quality or the person wasn't responsive. So having, having the willingness to throw stuff away is, is huge. So here's another one that I won't mention out loud. I, I was hired to come in and do an interview it was going to be a series of 30 shows with scientists using their products. And that we were going to interview 50 scientists so that we would get 20 to 30 good ones out of it. We are going to spend an hour or so with each scientist. So that changed to interviewing 30 scientists for an average of 8 to 12 minutes to get 30 shows out of. It's very hard to get people who are paying you for your time to throw things away, but you know that's where good things come from. I think, I think that's one of the biggest things I got from reading Ira Glass talking about This American Life. What, what makes them so good is they throw things away at every step in the process, from submissions to even stories in progress, every step of the process. And so if you've got the freedom to throw stuff away, you're going to have higher quality. So let's talk about clients. Finding clients is, is a funny thing. A lot of them haven't considered what audio can do for them. And so a lot of what you do is you educate them in what the possibilities are. And a lot of them want to use audio in ways that it cannot benefit them. So you've been pitching stories for years. This is the same thing as pitching a story. You're just pitching a client. So what are all the things that you can do? You can do a ton of things for these people. All the way from being a good recordist to your voice, to writing, to interviewing, to editing, to directing others, producing, and sales, finding them clients. So each one of these is skills that they may or may not have in-house that you can help with. Another way to, to work with a client is to get them up to speed and then move on. You don't, have to, you don't have to be a therapist forever, right? You want your patient to get better and then stand up on their own, and then they'll recommend you to others. So there's a lot of, of benefit there. I am not a fan of using my voice more than I have to because I'm really worried about burning my voice by having it too many places. So whenever I can convince a client not to use my voice on a podcast, I do. Um, just because then, you know, you're the guy doing that and you're the same guy doing that and, and they hear you everywhere. And So you can build your brand other ways, but voices is a way I'd, I would avoid. Um, recorders is something you shouldn't throw away so quickly. You have a good ear. I do an awful lot of business going to conferences, recording them, 
doing a little sound cleanup, and then doing real-time podcasting for them, getting it out to people. Sometimes we edit it severely. Sometimes we don't. So this was a case of um, a contract that I had that I really liked. This was the first writing I ever did uh, 11 years ago when I started writing for online. And so they called me and asked me what I podcast for them. And I started to, and then I thought, oh, I really want to move on. I don't want to associate my voice with, with this anymore because all the work I'm getting is, is in, I can say, Java. So I, I wanted to move beyond Java to other things, and I couldn't because that's where they kept hearing my voice. So I moved on from this contract, and, and that's okay. So what is audio good for? Audio is not a great way to convey lots of information. So when I get my blogs, do you guys use newsreaders or do you go to each website? So the nice thing about newsreaders is you can scan. You aren't reading everything. And even when you go to an article you like, you can scan. Audio is not something you can scan. So audio is not a great way to convey information. Clients don't often understand that. To them, audio is audio. It's just another way of reaching our, our customers. But audio is really good, as you know, of conveying emotion, character, the people behind the story. So I've been pitching Make Magazine for a long time. Do you guys know Make? Very cool magazine. Um, and on their pages, you can see projects. But in an audio podcast, you could get to know the makers. You could get to know what motivated somebody to tie a digital camera to a kite and fly it up in the air and, and try to take pictures. Um, so audio can do things that print can't. Print can do things that audio can't. It's not just we're going to take our books and we're going to read them into microphone, and that's great audio. So you got to explain the benefits to the client. So Distributing the Future was the first podcast I did, and I did it when I was working for O'Reilly. And O'Reilly has... Um, this is O'Reilly Media, not not Bill O'Reilly. Um, if any of you are in computers, they're the books with the animals on the cover. Uh, they're the missing manuals. They publish Make Magazine, um, publish a lot of websites. They do some very cool conferences, including Web 2.0, and uh, they do uh, OSCON and, and emerging technology shows like that. And then they have this notion of a foo which is a friend of O'Reilly, which if any of you are, are, are programmers, it, it came from a, a bad joke, which is they assumed that it would be fun to serve alcohol at the FUBAR. <clears throat> but each one of these had really cool reasons to be interviewed and talked to and really cool audio. And the idea behind Distributing the Future was um, it, it came out of a conference I went to with a couple people from, from O'Reilly, and we sat at a table with people who were at a conference we were putting on. And they asked us what O'Reilly did, and they didn't know. So we realized there were people that came to our conferences who didn't know our book business, who didn't know. So the synergies and getting people to move between them. And audio can do an awful lot of that. So we had these foos who we can talk to about the big picture, and we could realize that if there's 15,000 people at a conference, there's a lot more people that aren't there that are interested in the, in the material. Uh, books, you can talk and get at the person who wrote it, why they wrote it, you know, the standard interviews. Our websites were full of experts on current events, and we weren't using them for breaking events. And so, you know, Apple ships Leopard, and we weren't calling the people that write for the Mac Dev Center. So 
we were letting a lot go and make magazine with, with gadgets and people. So we started with conference recordings and just editing those down. And it was amazing that someone talks as long as I'm talking and you could probably edit it down to 10 minutes and, and convey the, the spirit of what was said. And so here are some shows that we started with, the one we talked about before. In April, I decided that I wanted to go freelance. And so um, my first job I did was, was for the second person here. Small companies can be wonderful. The scary thing is, big companies you know have the money and they'll be around to pay you the money. This small company, I did a podcast of their conference handed them the disc on the last day of the conference, and they handed me my check the next day. That's a wonderful thing. This last group um, did a conference, and you think, you're there to record a conference. Well, because you've got good ears, you're going to hear things that the people who are putting on the conference don't hear, because the people that come to set up a conference set up the speakers to work in the room. If there's a little buzz in the speaker, most of you won't hear it because it'll get buried in the air conditioning but you'll hear it in the recording. And so if you go into this type of business, bring your headphones and bring a spare pair for the guy that's running the board who might not have brought his headphones that day. I don't think I want to say more. So what does a client think? A client thinks there's nothing to audio. Video they get. Video you need cameras, you need lights, it needs a whole big production. For audio, you open up a microphone, you talk. What could be easier than that? And you always hear about, here's our, our marketing guy, he's really good at talking. And so I did a job for someone I don't have up on the screen where I recorded talks with these marketing guys and you wouldn't believe how many times they repeat themselves because their biggest fear is not being talking at, at any particular time. So it doesn't matter if they're saying anything as long as their mouth keeps moving. So when you edited it down, it was just a, a horrific thing. So they think they can just open a mic and talk. It'll sound as good as anything as they've ever heard on the, on the air. It'll be really inexpensive because you sound guys work cheap. And they'll be wildly successful. So I'm in the middle of doing a job for these people. We recorded the first show in July. And we haven't put it up yet because they think they're going to do something um, that's very intricate they commissioned theme music for the various segments. They want to script the various segments. And they want to do it surprisingly cheap without any effort from anybody. I'm told the first episode will go out next week. What does wildly successful mean? Each client will have a different notion of what this means. Wildly successful might mean, and, and I'm willing to mention these guys, I'm doing this, this Sun Java Micro Edition uh, podcast. Wildly successful to them is they have a community. They have two community leaders. They wanted the community to get to know the leaders, that there's a person there behind their websites that they can go. It's been wildly successful. People know these guys. They submit new code. The community has grown because they get that they're real people. It's not this amorphous corporation running their community, that there's people that care and are willing to speak out. And so wildly successful for them has been spread this goodwill, spread this feeling of community, bring other people in. I don't even know why they're up there. 
Um, wildly successful means different things to different people. And so we ran a website that initially was very quiet. We built it from nothing. And this was a fun website. It was a three-way collaboration. And it was huge. We did better than the corporate website. We won awards the first two years. And the company started to take notice. And when the company takes notice, you've got problems. Because now they want to move all the stuff that didn't work on their website over to your website. The same will happen when you do work in podcasting for someone. If you're successful they'll now want to script everything and control everything and change everything and make it into the thing that wasn't working for them before. So there's an advantage to being under the radar, and I'm just warning you that just because it's really nice in the beginning, it might not stay that nice. You know, NPR has these alt podcasts. They're pretty low under the radar now. At some point, NPR is going to notice that that's a very viable other channel for them, that that's another way of reaching people, and things may change. So what happened here was we were really successful with the series that we did for them. And so you hear what you hear a lot. If audio's successful, well, audio's just video without pictures. So why aren't you doing video for me? Again, they don't understand for the most part that video's a different medium, it's good for different things. And so the push is always, if we've got audio this time, we'll do video next time. Uh, they don't get the difference in bandwidth. So those of you, if you haven't done this lately, we get so used to broadband, we forget that there's still people on dial-up. You should try downloading some of this stuff on dial-up, and, and you'll, you'll feel for your friends. So when you're in this, you're being creative, you're having fun. If you're working for clients, it's a business. So you have to think through your rates. The rates vary widely. So I have a buddy whose standard rate in New York is $100 an hour. I have a friend in California whose standard rate is $2,500 a day. And there's people who get a lot less than that. You've got to think of where you fall. I am so anxious for all of you to be working in this field because the more of us there are who charge decent rates, the more the industry will value it at that rate. You still have people who say, oh, I'll just do it for free. I just love it so much. Stop it. If you're working with a big company, think in terms of contracts. Some of the contracts are pretty scary. I did a um, two-day job for Disney, and the contract was 23 pages. And a lot of the pages are about what insurance you have to carry. A lot of things that are in the contracts are negotiable. Some aren't. When you're a small person working with a big company, sometimes they just they don't have the bandwidth to have that many lawyers deal with that many contracts. They will, however, waive the insurance, so you can always ask them to do that. Um, a lot of companies want you to carry, for instance, general liability insurance. That seems like a reasonable thing. Some want you to carry automobile insurance, so that if you get a, in a wreck on your way to their job, they're named as an insured. I just, you know, my family's going to come first. I'm not going to do that. Um, collecting, some of them say net 30. You have to realize in business, and a lot of you are independent producers and already realize this, that a lot of your business is going to be pitching and collecting, that you have to set aside 30% of your time for doing the 
the business side of the business that you're going to have to reinvest in, in your equipment and all that. But again, you guys are uniquely positioned. You're doing this anyway. As for marketing, you're marketing a bunch of things. You're marketing yourself. Even if your voice isn't on it, this is a nice calling card for you. Uh, those of you that, that, I guess, again, going back to you, you were talking about a demo reel. This is a great source for a demo reel. You've got lots of these shows with your voice or not. It's a great example of what you're doing. Uh, you're marketing your show. It sounds kind of backwards, but the more people you can drive to your customer's show, the happier they're going to be with you. The better their show does, the better you do. And so you're also marketing your services. So the cool part, you get to create a brand new show, and it really is cool. The reality is it's not your show. So the good news is, for those of you here, is you're doing what you've always done. All you're doing is you're helping someone tell their story more effectively. Now, the risks, because we do keep coming back to the risks, the risks are also that some stations, once you've done a podcast for someone in a certain area, you can't cover that anymore for your station. You know, there, there are some, some ethics that you're going to have to consider, but the upside, I think, is, is huge. So it's all about you. Thanks. Questions, comments, complaints? Uh, is there a way of uh, seeing a sample of a podcast contract somewhere? I, mean, I have no idea what that would even look like. Is there somewhere online there might be a sample? Um, it, it's a standard business contract usually. I, I can show you. If you come up later, I'll show you. If you swear not to tell anyone. Again, that's recorded. <laughs> you talked about the fact that uh, if you're actually selling your podcast or getting sponsorships that you're a business and I'm wondering um, does that mean that you have to sort of like incorporate into a nonprofit, for example in order to do business so I did I'm an S corp and I did that because I wanted to protect my stuff and my family's stuff and so I did two things I incorporated and I keep everything separate and so the nice thing is you know the business buys the equipment and, and things like that and it's a little bit of a pain because you're filing separately, but it's a good way to protect yourself. And then my other question quickly is that you said you try to use your voice as seldom as possible. Then whose voices are you using? Um, I use either the client or there's, there's other people from radio who I'll use. There are some things that I'll voice, but I, do, I, I just think you can burn. Who are you pitching at companies? That's a great question. Uh, and this, this comes up a lot with, I mean, across everything you pitch because you're often spending a lot of time pitching the person that can't make the decision anyway. And so for me, I work with a lot of technology. And so for the technology companies, I, I'll find the community manager and then I'll work my way up. Uh, usually, it's, it's a horrible question to have to ask, but you ask who can approve money because you have to know that. Um. How do you convince people they need to pay you to make their podcast when the listener downloads it for free so they don't get any direct revenue out of it? So with companies, this is easier than, than for other organizations. So with companies, they understand this. They pay someone to lay out their print that someone gets to see for free. They, they pay someone to produce a lot of money to produce, produce advertisement. And so what, what you're... 
They will all think that they can do it themselves. And where I've gotten a lot of business from is taking existing things that they've done, reworked a demo using their voices and, and mixing in other elements and convincing them how much more professional it can be. The other thing is they often, even if they're in companies that have a media wing, they often don't get that. And so the people they have working on, on these things aren't very talented. That sounds really bad. But, but yeah. And, and a lot of them will say, well, you know, I have a cousin who is studying. Let him, you know. I'm okay with that. Is podcasting becoming uh, something that's happening in colleges? Are people learning this stuff? Is it a course? Can you envision that someday? I'm, I'm not I'm podcasting as opposed to just audio in general. How professional, where do you see this all going? I mean, my 11-year-old records movies and, and audio. I don't think it's particularly good, but she likes it. Um, so it's it's the same way when, when I began radio, and I wasn't the type of radio that you guys do, which is really good radio, um, but when I was spinning music and stuff, I never took it. And so I would hate to say, you've got to go to a school and, and learn this as a, as a formal curriculum. I'm not answering your question, though. I'm wondering if we're thinking correctly about it, if we need to open the brain up a little bit more. I think of it, this, again, the same way I thought. think of blogging. Blogging is writing, and I don't think... We talk about blogging, we talk about what's different in blogging, but they're really writers. And so podcasting, that's the mechanism of distribution, but they're really people producing audio. So, uh, you, you said market yourself, market your podcasts. How does one market your podcast? I mean, there's a big, wide, open sea and. I don't know how you generate traffic. So here's something I found out the hard way, and that was um, companies that you go to to pitch will go to your website. And if your website isn't ready, uh, I, I had a big company that wouldn't sign until I had a website that looked professional. And so one way to market is, is put together a website that's cheap enough to do. Um, one question that companies will often ask, so when you do freelance contracting for companies, do you know about the, the Microsoft problem? Well, that's too vague. Microsoft gets sued a bunch of years back because they were using contractors as employees. And so they were dodging paying taxes and things like that by hiring people as contractors. And so as a result, when you go to freelance, a lot of times they want to know that you're, you're spending less than X percent of your time working for them. And so they want to know that you have at least a couple other clients. And so... One of the questions they'll ask is, how do you market your business? And I've always been able to say I don't, but I've been very lucky. But they want to know that. And a website is a great way to do it. Uh, getting people that you listen to to listen back and link to you. But all the j jobs I've gotten has been word of mouth so far. It's just been a magic year. Is there any particular software that you can recommend? And not audio software, but... For example, I imagine when you're managing all of these multiple podcasts that you're not writing uh, code for each episode. Is there an easier way to do that? Than I'm actually probably the wrong person to ask because I'm geeky enough that I open up the XML and I just edit it directly. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. But I mean, that, that's my background. Anything else? 
Yes. Are there any resources you can recommend to get into the technical and the tools aspect which you explicitly not cover? Sure. Um, Apple has um, has pages on their site. If you if you Google there, Apple has something cool coming for those of you that work for for companies that do that do regular recording. They have something in Leopard server called Podcast Producer that is really kind of cool. And uh, someone has set up an open source version. It's basically a, a Mac Mini in a box with a camera that you set in the back of a room, and it automatically records your, your sessions and then uploads it to the server and then kicks it out. So Apple has the whole workflow there. I don't know Microsoft products because I don't allow it in our house, but... Uh, so that, that's one place to do it. Um, if you email me, I can send you resources for that. If you guys do email me, please tell me that you met me here. I get four or 500 emails a day and mentioned it here, and I'll be glad to answer. Anybody else? Yes. I was curious to know, uh, since you started life in another profession, what was the toughest switch for you to, to go to sound, to go to radio, podcasting? So... This was actually very cool for me. Um, I put myself through graduate school working in non-serious radio. And so I was, I was a mathematician by, by day, and, and I was a DJ by night, and, and just had a ball. And then radio stopped being fun. Radio people stopped owning radio stations. Big companies came in, and radio just was horrible to work in. You got your playlist on a computer and these little cards that told you what to say when. And so I went away, and I, I worked in math, and then things changed. And then podcasting came along. And all of a sudden, radio is really fun again because we control the channel. And so I asked the usual stupid questions online. Um, Air has been really helpful. Transom has been really helpful. I mean, there's some wonderful people. I came to Third Coast last year, which was just amazing, and you know, drew an audio doctor critique that was just really wonderful. And ask the stupid questions of people like Doug K at IT Conversations, you know, what equipment did he use? And so what I found was there's nobody working in this who wasn't really nice and reached out back to help you along. And I don't know if that's going to stay as, as this grows, but it's just been a really warm community. And, and that's really why I came back to tell my stories, because people have been just so nice to me. Oh, he's standing up to say, no, people suck in this world. <laughs> No, I, I have a question for those of us who are reporters of whether we shift from reporting for a radio station providing features to podcasting. We're then seen as public relations persons rather than reporters. Is, have you run across that or do, do reporters run across that issue of not then being seen as objective? I would imagine that's, that's a big liability. And that's come up on the air list. Uh, where I look at some of this podcasting is the same way. In my last life in radio, we called these industrials, where you'd go in and you do work for that. And so in some ways, you can think of these as industrials because you know, you're not free to talk about the negative things in, in clients necessarily. Is that, I, I, think that is a big, I think that is a big risk. Um, if we were looking to go to the dark side and do PR podcasting as it were for companies, can you suggest any companies' podcasts that we could listen to, get an, get an idea of how, I don't know, ones you've done or other people have done, so we can get an idea of what, what type of format and structure they've used? Sure. Um, a couple of things on that is, is back to, do you guys know what I mean when I say industrials? 
So in the in the time of, of in the time of radio, <laughs> you'd go in you'd go into a company and you'd record something that they would only show internally to their sales staff or whatever. So for instance, the podcast that I'm doing with Intel is going to be internal only. One of the podcasts I did for Disney because it was a technical conference they ran with their people talking about technology that they haven't talked publicly about, it's only internal. So there's a big opportunity for that because that isn't beyond the firewall. For things that are beyond the firewall, there's some that are very PRE, PRE, um, and then there's some that aren't. So for instance, um, the, the, there's a lot of, if you look under open source, there's a lot of open source podcasts that are not PR, um, don't tend to be PR, but do have big corporations behind it. Um, I, I know that IBM is now doing podcasts on their developer works, and so that's a non-PR one. Uh, then there are companies like PodTech. PodTech specializes in doing very PR-oriented. They they basically sell their their services to a company, and in return, but they're very open about it. That's what they're there to do is is to present that company in the best light. So if you look at PodTech online, they do the PR-oriented ones. Uh, the other thing that I, I meant to say was, for those of you working at stations, I think this is a big opportunity for stations because instead of you selling what you do, you've got a sales staff. And so the sales staff should realize that they've got a talent pool that they can sell their talents, understanding that division. That this is not on air. This is not objective work. But this is we have people that can help you write your stories, tell your stories. And that's another case where I'd, I'd be careful not to voice it. Do people own rights to their podcast if somebody wanted to go use our podcast for some other purpose? It depends how you release it. So some of the podcasts I do are owned. Some are Creative Commons. It depends on the... Uh, so if I did a series for the ACM, which is the, the computer um, organization, and it explicitly says this is a Creative Commons podcast, and it tells you how you can reuse it. Uh, you talked earlier about the choice of either training people to, to get up to speak themselves and do their own or hiring you to do it um, and the difference in quality. But in terms of if you're working with an organization that you're um, uh, trying to build capacity for, have you ever done that? Have you found ways of collaborating where you could use their knowledge of the subject matter, they could use your knowledge of the, the technique, and you could marry them together to produce something really terrific? With, with with the aim of me getting out or with the aim of me just continuing? Either. So continuing, that's the sun one. And the aim of me getting out was the name I f flashed in, in parentheses where I got them to a certain point and said, you know, I'll help you. Here's what you need. We set them up, told them how to, how to do things, what to listen for. And then I'm going to come back every couple months and tune it a little bit. And that's successful? Mm -hmm. uh, you're happy with the product? Mm -hmm. I'm very happy. And how long does that take, the collaboration, until they were able to... It always takes longer than, than you want, um, but, but not a year. And, and so, for instance, my engagement with Intel, Intel loves engagements where they specify that they want to be trained by the end of it, and they almost never are, so you almost always get one renewal, at least. And do you, when they say to you, okay, if we ever want to do this ourselves, what will it cost to buy all the equipment, do you have a... Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talk about what equipment they'll need. Um, so, for instance, for Intel, they're, they're, um, they don't, didn't care so much. They cared more about the ease than the quality, so they bought iPods for their team to record on. 
Um, the Sun team bought microtracks, and then the thing that, that I think makes the biggest difference, of course, is the microphone. And so getting them to realize the microphone, but just sometimes for ease of use, it's easier for them not to have to worry about a big microphone. Am I answering you? Sort of. I was just wondering if you had a figure you'd give them. Well, but it, it varies so much depending on their needs. Right. So what we often will set up is um, they often need things like to record over Skype or some way to record remotely. Uh, what I do with Sun is we've got me in Cleveland, uh, one guy in Colorado, one guy in Germany, and we all record locally, and then I edit them back together because I find that works better. We record Skype too, but I still don't like the Skype sound. There's artifacting in it. And so I've used Skype, I've used telephones, but if I can get people to record remotely... Um, what I'd kind of like with some of my clients is, is to get them up to speed where I can say, I'd like to hire a tape sync to come to your place and do it. So. Hi there. Um, I feel there's a, an element of feel the fear and do it anyway associated with this class in the sense that um, uh, for those who have yet to, to jump into the pool of podcasting, and I would uh, hold my hand up to that so it's on the to-do list and there comes a day when you just can't resist anymore um, so I nearly feel to a certain extent there could nearly be another class or an offshoot off this for, for people like myself so you're just in the baby pool you know um, so feeling the fear and doing that anyway um, just to take us through those um, kind of hand-holding steps just just briefly previously in the life that you would have led in, in connection with radio and the stations and then being an independent producer or whatever so you have you know uh, honed your craft you've become accomplished your name your reputation is locked in in connection with that suddenly you're going to jump into into this um uh, new division and at the same time you're starting brand new it's scary it's exciting but at the same time you're going to release work that is going to be completely amateur compared to other stuff you've done. Now it's, it's a it, it's a, a different it's medium same but different, but it's still the same name. It's you. So how do you how does one, um, you know, be cool with the kids to a certain extent, have fun, but at the same time you're completely terrified because you have to start. But in starting out, you are not at the level in the other area of of your career that you've taken all the years to find yourself honed and accomplished. So what I did with um, the first podcast I did, which was Distributing the Future, was I labeled it a beta broadcast for the first seven episodes. And online, people are amazingly forgiving of that. If you label it a beta and let people know that you know you're learning, and at least once or twice during the show, indicate that you'd like feedback. So one of the feedbacks I got was, because I came from radio, after every episode, I'd say something like, well, you're listening to Distributing the Future. And they go, well, we know that. We downloaded the podcast. We're not tuning in. And so people were really nice about giving feedback. And so I found that if you label something a beta, companies don't necessarily like that. But as you're learning, people are very forgiving. Yeah, because it just struck me that the whole objective eventually then obviously is to have a branch off to make some extra cash from this. So you have to have the confidence to go to a client and ask them to have confidence in you, but you have to have the confidence in yourself. So I was just wondering how do you bridge that gap, you know, so thank you. And, and one leads to another. It's, it's really been amazing to me that almost every client I've had has recommended me to at least two others. And so it's, it's just been magic. People are just great. I know I sound so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more the technology side, so I appreciate you. But I think that um, 
I've been seeing really some of the technology blogging podcasts in the world. They're starting to use some other models. Like, uh, I feel like they're, they're using the PCAST from Virginia uh, Rails, where they're actually paying for episode or paying for the podcast to be on their website. Yeah. 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 Yeah they're able to, to charge for screencasts. And so um, my, my other freelance job is, is I edit for the pragmatic programmers. And so we're very aware of that. We're looking at doing screencasts as well. And, and as a, our other clients, you know what screencasts are as opposed to video? So screencasts are, um, you, you basically watch your screen and you can see someone using an application. And so for some things, that's very compelling. Instead of saying, push your save button now, you see someone moving and, and pushing the button so it looks like it's going to look on your computer. And it's a great way to learn. Um, some programming is better than others. Some of there's just a lot of code you're watching someone type, not so compelling. But with frameworks like, like Ruby on Rails, you push a couple buttons and there's things spit out from everywhere and it just works. And so these people at Peep Code uh, produce these screencasts and you pay very little per episode. And he claims to be making $10,000 a month from it, that he's making a living from it. So we're, we're tracking that very closely. Um, it, it's weird because people's idea of what something should cost are very set in their head. And for a long time, people thought if it was online, it should be free. And so that's been a very hard thing to, to fight. And so that's why we've got mainly the sponsorship model, but we're looking at the prags at that because we're looking at doing our own. Um, people would pay for pragmatic. I would. Good, talk to me later because we're launching something soon. <laughs> it's so wrong. It's just marketing. Um, but, but yeah, so on, on a macro level, you can see that playing out in, in the fights that Apple is having with, with NBC Universal, where they're fighting about what things should cost online and who controls cost. Uh, so we'll see if people are willing to pay like that. Thanks.